0: Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a new podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tolhurst, and here with me to discuss another huge week of politics and news is the Conservative MP and Chair of the Treasury Select Committee, Mel Stride, and Director of the Institute of Fiscal Studies, Paul Johnson sombre period of 10 days of mourning after the, the Queen's death politics is back with a bang this week. We've had some massive announcements from the Business Secretary Jacob Rees-Mogg on energy support for businesses. The Health Secretary uh, Therese Coffey has announced a plan for tackling problems in the NHS. And on Friday morning, we have the new Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng delivering what we're not allowed to call a budget or even a mini budget, although it looks like it's going to be a rather large fiscal event, which we're going to be discussing now. Obviously, as well, Liz Truss has been in New York at the UN General Assembly, having bilateral talks with Joe Biden and discussing Putin's not-so-veiled threat of using nuclear weapons. She's back in the country now and is going to be sitting next to her chancellor when he delivers his first kind of major fiscal event. It does look as though it's going to be much more than the kind of emergency small budget that we expected when the, the Prime Minister first took over, it looks like not just tax cuts, but things like planning policy changes, uh, big changes to the welfare system and universal credit, a stamp duty cut, um, things on investment zones. Paul, you I think have described it as the biggest tax cutting fiscal event since Nigel Lawson's budget of 1988. Can you just lay out for us a little bit why it's actually going to be a rather large fiscal event on Friday?
1: Well, this is on the assumption that uh, what we see announced is cut in national insurance contributions, as promised by the Prime Minister, and the rowing back on the uh, intention to increase corporation tax, which is supposed to come in next April. If you undo both of those, then this will be a £30 billion or so tax cut relative to what we were expecting From next April. Now, that's a very big change in direction. Now, on corporation tax, it's fair to say that that's a change in direction which will take us much more back to where the Conservative government had been up until Rishi Sunak's announcement of the big increase because corporation tax rates have been coming down gradually over the last decade. And that was a big reversal of policy uh, from Mr. Sunak the national insurance cut we've clearly had 1.25% increase on both employee and, and employer rates this year which is supposed to transmogrify into the health and social care levy a new tax but with much the same effect next april so I'm doing both of those is a big change in direction from very recent conservative policy although it is worth putting all of that in the context of the fact that if we continue to see per income tax allowances and thresholds held constant, as again announced by Rishi Sunak 18 months ago, that is in itself a big tax increase, particularly given the scale of inflation at the moment and a tax increase much, much bigger than was intended when that was announced because inflation has made that tax rise much bigger than expected.
0: Mm. And you've also also the IFS said that reversing the national insurance and corporation tax rises would leave debt on an unsustainable path. Can you explain a little bit about how you've come to that conclusion and why this represents a real kind of significant change to what the UK's debt is going to be like in the coming years?
1: Well, of course, debt is rising very fast over the next year or so because the scale of the energy support package is so large, we don't know quite how large, but probably a good 150 billion or so, that will immediately add to debt. And of course, the economy has slowed down and is expected to slow further relative to previous forecasts. So the Office of Budget Responsibility in March was forecasting that the deficit three years hence will be around 30 billion pounds. Well, two things have happened since then. As I say, first, the economy has slowed down, adding probably another 30, 35 billion to deficit in the long run. And in addition, we're expecting 30 billion of tax cuts, maybe more um, tomorrow. Put all of that together, uh, then we can expect the deficit, and this is after the energy package is presumably um, gone, to be around 100 billion in three or four years' time. Now, if it is around that level, uh, that is enough that debt as a fraction of national income would be on, a, a, on an ever upward path. Now, it's important to be clear, there's an enormous amount of uncertainty about these kinds of things, but we believe that had the OBR been asked to make a forecast associated with this fiscal event, that's the sort of number, the sort of forecast they would have come up with. Now, it's very clear that if that's the case, then the fiscal targets that this government legislated earlier this year uh, to get debt falling and to borrow only for investment, that both of those fiscal targets would be missed. And I think it's a shame, as it were, that we don't have the OBR making those formal um, forecasts to which the Treasury would need then to
0: respond. Yeah. Mel, obviously, you've been calling for that OBR. You were surprised, I think, that the, the, the Treasury did not call for that. They've said that actually they'll do one for perhaps the full budget that comes later in the year. But, you know, and they say that one of the ways to kind of get around this kind of problem of adding to debt is that they're going to focus on growth. And I guess the sort of trustonomics that is coming in, the kind of it's a real sort of gamble on growth and making the dividing line in the future with Labour, certainly taxation rather than the deficit. But growth has been notoriously hard to come by for this government and Tory governments of the past decade. You know, what what do you kind of make of this idea of of gambling on growth?
2: Well, I think it is a big risk because uh, I think uh, Paul has very eloquently set out the kind of incrinditure, the effect. Um, It could be that if growth goes up by, you know, towards its 2.5 trend that we've had in the past pre the financial uh, crisis, that all is absolutely fine, but I think the point we're making is that there are no economists out there that are suggesting that uh, dropping national insurance and uh, holding the level of corporation tax is going to do anything like what is required to achieve that. So one of the things that I think we're going to be looking out for when the Chancellor makes his statement is what has he got to say about growth. And I think the IFS report suggests, for example, something above, uh, you know, not not zero point seven percent bre. Uh, in the decade, and you know, in the run-up to the uh, financial crisis, if we kind of square the books in terms of those targets that uh, Paul was just uh, speaking about, and it's not obvious to me how that can be done, given what I've heard, and it's not obviously to, obvious to me how it can be done in in the short to medium term. These things generally getting growth up, dealing with productivity, getting business investment up, and so on, uh, sort of a more medium longer term plays than the kind of time
0: we've got between now say the next general election. Mm. There's been some sort of criticism that perhaps the PM and the Chancellor are making these sort of choices based on a economic reality that doesn't really exist. You know, the outlook for the economy is much weaker than the OBR forecast in March, and obviously they're not doing another OBR forecast now, and it feels as though, you know, they're sticking through with these plans they've all had throughout the campaign for trust to become leader but at the same time there are these huge interventions on energy bills and also the forecast for for debt is worse than expected so it's a very difficult one to kind of square the circle and make all these things work right
2: yeah so what what the markets want what politicians wants uh, is a, an independent forecast so we can start to try and answer these questions about where we're all uh headed and uh, as you say the the, the last forecast was Back in March, uh, from the OBR, and all has changed since then. The economic uh, outlook has undoubtedly deteriorated, certainly in terms of inflation uh, and growth forecasts. And other things have happened as well. There's been a major, admittedly one-off intervention, but a big intervention in May, Chancellor. Uh, now we're obviously looking at very significant fiscal interventions. Uh, uh, we expect uh, in the Friday. Uh, statement and all of that needs to be put into this forecast so that we can start to see what the overall outcome of all this is going to look like. And at the moment, we're not having that. And I'm convinced by the kind of uh, arguments the government's been putting as to why we're not having that. Because what we know from my correspondence with Richard GABR is that uh, there is a forecast already. In fact, it would have been on the Chancellor's desk on his first uh, uh, day in in the office. Basically, factoring in the changed outlook for the economy since March and factoring in the fiscal interventions as heard between March uh, and now. And there was the ability to have factored in uh, what is the Chancellor's going to announce uh, on Friday uh, morning as well. Now, I've him um, a uh, fiscal forecast where we're normally used to, but we would have had
0: something that would have not the requirements of the OBR's charter. Paul, do you think that that sort of partial report from the OBR would have indicated to quasi Kwa that that kind of fiscal headroom that the trust campaign spoke about so much during the campaign was no longer there, basically, and that essentially that money is going to have to come from elsewhere or it's going to have to be added to borrowing?
1: Yes, I think very clearly. I don't think there's any chance whatsoever that uh, a forecast from the OBR would have said anything different from that the headroom had been more than eaten up by uh, deteriorating economic circumstances. And then if you want to significantly cut taxes, then you're going to do that by having significant additional borrowing on top of the amount that would allow you to be balancing the current budget. I mean, it, it is also worth saying we're talking an awful lot about the tax cuts, yeah. There's a real immediate another real immediate challenge facing the government, which is on the spending um, side. I mean, all of our forecasts have been done assuming that spending goes ahead as currently planned. Now, the current plans were put in place a year ago when we we're expecting inflation to be three percent, it's now ten percent. And just to heap to those real term spending levels, you'd need another round about twenty billion pounds a year of spending. There's clearly huge pressures in the NHS, there's pressures in the justice system, there's pressures in the school and further education system and so on. And of course, the Prime Minister has committed to increasing defence spending really quite significantly. So my guess is that in the next couple of years, we're going to see spending increase as well. um, And that then puts further pressure on the public finances, which we've not even accounted for in the forecast that we've been making recently.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And one of the reasons why the previous Conservative administration had been putting up taxes over the past few years was because of the demands on spending from the pandemic and then from from departments after that. And it does feel as though, Mel, we're a little bit of a point where I suppose this government has to decide, is it still going to be a high spending administration or if it's a low tax one are we going to see perhaps cuts to some of those public services to try and to square that kind of the, the finances off what are your kind of thoughts on that
2: well there are rumors of another spending review coming up and it may or may not be that the chancellor had something to say about that but certainly if the growth doesn't appear it will become increasingly difficult to balance all these various moving parts and then it would put greater pressure i think on either backing off on the policies and the tax cuts or beginning to cut expenditure in a way that you wouldn't otherwise have to. But I would just add to Paul's very good point about the additional cost of potentially maintaining departmental expenditure uh, in real terms. You've also got a commitment to defence, which admittedly is is at 3% of GDP, but is, is further out towards the end of the decade. But one has to ask what's the profiling of that and what are the implications of that. And the other point is that to the extent that tax cuts are going to push inflation higher than it otherwise would have been then that's admittedly going to have a positive effect on the public finances, as Paul has said, because it means there's fiscal drag and extra tax take. But it'll have a negative consequence in terms of the costs of servicing our ever increasing debt, and also the costs of state pensions uh, as well. And of course, interest rates will have to rise to further than they would otherwise have done if inflation is taking off because of tax cuts. And that has cost implications for the national debt servicing too. So there are many moving parts here but we get back to the original point. It would be useful to have an independent forecast so we can start to pore over what this might mean in
0: total. Yeah, absolutely. Just after we finish recording this, we'll find out from the Bank of England what they're going to do in terms of interest rates earlier today. um, Sir John Key, the former deputy governor, said that the bank and the government are sort of pulling in different directions. You know, the bank are trying to sort of slow down the economy and reduce inflation, while the government perhaps risks fueling inflation with the, the rise in borrowing. But obviously a rise in interest rates, which will have a massive effect on households on mortgages too. Do you think that perhaps, you know, there was talk during the leadership campaign whether they would look at changing the Bank of England's mandate and there's a threat to the bank's independence. Mel, what have you been hearing about that?
2: Well, during the leadership campaign, I think there were some things said that seemed to imply um, that the new government that's just come in might move against the bank, if you like, and uh, encroach upon its independence. It wasn't clear exactly what was being said, but it could be interpreted almost by some that this might be politicians beginning to meddle again in monetary policy and Uh, setting interest rates which I think would be a huge mistake. Now I think the government has quite rightly uh, made it very clear and I've asked on the floor of the house uh, this question and received the answer that they've no intention of doing that. That's not to say that they might not look at the kind of remit of the Bank of England in terms of uh, growth and various other things as well but there has certainly been a push in that direction. I think though there are other things going on which is there have been comments made about uh, the financial sector regulators, the fca the pra and the um, payment services uh, regulator whether they should all be amalgamated there have been comments made about the obr there were comments made last night on on newsnight for example about uh, the accuracy or otherwise of obr forecasts and by extension one assumes you know the question are they fit for purpose or not so it seems to me there's a lot of oh sorry and the permanent secretary of course at the treasury has been uh, shown the door in very short order. So one sense is that there's a lot of questioning of the institutions, of the architecture that sits around our economic future. And I, I, I think that's something that the committee in particular will be very live to, and I think is an area of potential danger.
0: Yeah, Trust has spoken a lot about kind of getting rid of the Treasury orthodoxy, and the physical uh, dimension of that obviously was the sacking of Tom Scholar. Paul, I just wondered what you thought about the relationship between the government and the, the Bank of England, and what the impact will be if we do get sort of another large rise in the interest rates today.
1: I think as Mel has said, the government's now made it fairly clear that they're not looking to undermine the independence of the bank, and I think that's a very good thing. If you're focused on growth, you absolutely need trust and stability in your political and macroeconomic institutions. Uh, And the sacking of permanent secretary of the Treasury and some of these suggestions about undermining independent institutions really don't help in that context. That doesn't mean you can't ever make change. But after a a summer of um, uncertainty and instability, I think it would be useful to have a period of stability. Now, more broadly, the role of the bank, of course, is to get inflation under control. Um, They've raised interest rates gradually over the last several months, and they're going to raise them further. And I suspect they will raise them more than they otherwise would have done over the next several months because the government is following a much looser fiscal policy than they were previously. Now, that's not necessarily uh, a bad thing. I mean, there are times when tight monetary and loose fiscal policy are appropriate and indeed there might have been a case for a tighter monetary and looser fiscal policy back through some of the 2010s but the impact of these are clearly quite different you've already said that higher interest rates are clearly going to impact on people with mortgages there are I think something like 4 million people who have bought a home with a mortgage since the financial crisis so in a period of extremely low interest rates. And whilst your know, interest rates may only go up by one, two, three, four percent, which for those of us who remember the 1990s feels like relatively small changes, that nevertheless um, you know, doubles, triples, quadruples, quintuples, um, the amount of interest that people have been used to paying. But the, you know, the purpose in a way of the bank doing this is explicitly to slow the economy in order To bring inflation under control, and you're right. I think there is some tension between the government leaning one way
0: and the and the the bank leaning, as it were, deliberately against them in the other direction. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, uh, we've not even talked really great deal about inflation and the kind of impact that's kind of been having in a lot of the stuff that we sort of talk about. And another thing in terms of the costings, it seems remarkable to me that you know we had obviously the the announcement from the government just before the announcement of the Queen's death about the household energy bills package. And then on Wednesday this week, we had the announcement about the, how the business package has worked. We don't actually have a costing for that yet. We're expecting to get one from the Treasury in Kwasi Kwarteng's statement on Friday. But it does seem remarkable that this could potentially be the largest sort of fiscal intervention in like peacetime. And we still don't really have any understanding of how much it's going to cost.
2: I think, yeah, if I may come in on that. I, I think some of that is to be expected because it's just huge uncertainty out both in terms of where the gas price is going which has rocketed up and down a bit like a yo-yo in recent times and also what where gas consumption is going to be you know how consumers adjust and what the weather is going to be like over the winter but you can in forecasts and indeed the forecasters do provide different different scenarios so one of the interesting things to look at will be what are the implications of uh, you know the different possible assumptions and how they play out. But once again, we'd need uh, an independent forecast to really get an independent view of that.
0: Mm, Yeah. Um, And Paul, what did you you kind of make of the idea that these two huge announcements came, but with no kind of price tag attached to them at the time?
1: No, I think it's really surprising. I mean, it it is clear that the the Treasury and Bayes have been working on, on, on this package for some considerable period of time, and that there is some analysis and sense of cost underlying them. So I think it's a shame that they weren't put in the public domain at the moment at which these things were announced. I hope that tomorrow we get some serious detail about them, including detail about the uncertainty, because, of course, it is uncertain how much they'll cost. But it's uh, certainly well within the capacity of uh, government to say, well, we think the uncertainty lies within these bounds under these circumstances with gas prices doing this set of things. Uh, then we expect the price to be around about this. Uh, Under different circumstances, it might be around about that with a central estimate. So these are uncertain, but actually when you've got uncertainty, it's even more important that we have clarity and transparency about what the scale of that uncertainty is and what the underlying calculations are. So I, I really hope that we don't just actually get a number in a speech tomorrow which says, and we think the number is 110 billion, whatever it is, but we actually get a proper document which sets out the calculations in a very
0: clear and transparent manner. Yeah, obviously, in lieu of an OBR report, we are hoping to get some more detailed stuff from the Treasury themselves. I suppose partly the reason that a lot of the stuff is uncertain is that you know the government's having to work at an extremely accelerated pace to come up with a system, especially the one for business, that wasn't any mechanism in place for price capping for non-domestic energy. And it looks as though they're trying to get it through as sort of quickly as possible. From a sort of political standpoint, uh, Mel, you know th- this is kind of a massive moment for for Truss. It's an, it's an incredibly difficult intray that she's stepped into as Prime Minister. It's no secret that y- you know you supported uh, Rishi Sunak in the in the contest, but I wondered what you kind of made of, of Truss over this period, and whether you think that actually, you know, if she pulls off this gamble, if she kind of gets these big announcements right and has a good conference, that actually it kind of will stand her in good stead through the winter into next year as well. Well,
2: I mean, where I stand on Ms. Truss as Prime Minister is totally and utterly supportive. I mean, from, as a Conservative member of parliament. I want to win the next general election. That means the party needs to unite. Uh, And we need to get a lot of these big decisions that we're discussing here and around the NHS and around immigration and other issues right uh, in time. And it's going to be very tough. But getting back to the discussion that we're having at the moment, I think that what the government mustn't do is make the new orthodoxy, if you like, in the economy, one around avoiding scrutiny, not being transparent knocking a lot of our institutions. Um, we need to row back from that pretty quickly. So as Paul is saying, I'm hoping tomorrow that in the absence of an OBR forecast, there will at least be something that the Treasury comes forward by way of forecasts. And the only other thing I would say about the OPR forecast is you're right, things have had to move very quickly. But the headlines, we we know, we the government will have known for some time, major intervention fiscally, it's going to cost quite a lot depending on the gas price. The OBR will be able to have unwound the tax uh, changes relatively quickly and easily because they will have factored them in in the beginning and unwinding them is not a massively complicated exercise so something useful could have been produced Uh, and let's see what the government can do
0: in lieu of. And Paul just this new orthodoxy we talked at the start about growth just to kind of to end on what do you think the government is able to do in terms of growth and is there anything that you've seen from the plans from government or things in sort of the macroeconomic situation that you think that growth will be able to kind of be accelerated to help square this circle and stop the government from perhaps breaking its fiscal rules as we go forward
1: well, it, it, governments are able to um, impact on, on growth. We often think that governments are somewhat impotent, but they're really not. But over the long run is when they can impact on growth. So if we get reforms to the planning system, increases in infrastructure investment, uh, reforms to education, reforms to the tax system, high-quality trade deals, including something that gives us close and easy trade links with the European um, union, and all of those sorts of things, then in the long run, government really can have a serious effect um, on growth. So I'm hoping that the statement tomorrow tells us uh, more about some of those plans, and I believe that the statement is
0: being badged as a plan for growth. I mean, government, governments often have a plan for growth. I think you know, governments of the past have been littered with plans for growth, growth plans, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it doesn't seem as though we've had much of it in the past decade or past two decades, I suppose.
1: Well, I, partly that's because you do need to be willing to take unpopular. Decision. So uh, take, for example, planning reform. There was a significant you know, bill that, that was going through Parliament, which was withdrawn um, after the loss of a by-election. And part of the issue here, I mean, and it's a serious one, is that people often vote against growth because they would prefer not to have additional houses or additional roads or be members of the European Union or what have you, for other reasons, which are not associated with economics and growth. So people do make these decisions. And I think we have to be very clear that there are often trade-offs here. But if Liz Truss is genuine about her willingness to make unpopular decisions, then I think there is some cause for optimism here, because it requires a bravery and unpopular decisions to give us growth. And actually, without it, we're going to continue in a world in which people's incomes are struggling and in which we're stuck in a in in a a long long period of economic stagnation which which matters for people's well-being it matters for people's health it matters for the amount of money we've got to spend on public services it matters for how well we're doing relative to our um, our competitors and and it matters for politics as well actually because a, a discontented population from an economic point of view makes for a discontented population from a political point of view as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think some of the criticism of of Boris Johnson and his administration was that he was not willing to be unpopular and often would sort of vacillate between policies. Truss seems as though she's clear that she's more than just being willing to be unpopular, she's going to stick to her plans and stick to her policies and, and stick it through. I just wondered... Mel, we talk about planning there, that we're going to get probably some stuff in in the statement on that. Do you think that's a kind of a key plank, do you think, of her administration? Actually, she does need to be clear that she's going to stick to those sorts of plans. And that's actually a big part of how she can get some growth into the economy.
2: If she's going to get growth up to the levels that have been talked about, so back to trend growth, about 2.5%, she's going to have to be pretty radical pretty quickly. Now, planning will be central uh, to that. We'll have to see what's said. It's interesting that the early evidence actually is that I think Liz Truss has been fairly brave thus far. It's very early days. So, we've seen the approach to fracking, for example, we've seen the approach to uh, the apparent approach to bankers' bonuses. Uh, she's looking at the tax system in a rather different way to her predecessors. So, she says that she's less concerned about uh, distribution, the distributional effects of tax changes, and more about are they play into growth? Now, those are all fairly brave positions to take. And uh, I, I guess, you know, if you're being optimistic and she can stick to her guns and be absolutely banging away on, on growth at every turn, almost irrespective of the political cost, which of course is a huge challenge, then we might see some progress. But it, it will be very interesting to see what is said about growth tomorrow when, when Kwasi gets to the dispatch
0: board. That's all we've got time for this week, but you can read all the latest on the big stories from Westminster at politicshome.com. And keep right up to date by subscribing to our seven day a week newsletters by clicking on the link in the top right hand corner of the website. Thanks to my fantastic guests, Mel Stride and Paul Johnson. Our editor was Laura Silver. And thanks to you all again for listening. Please subscribe where you get your podcasts and leave us a review. If you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at politicshome or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, have a great weekend and be sure to listen again next week and we'll have a special live podcast from the Labour Party conference in Liverpool. But for now, I've been Alan Tolhurst, and this has been The Rundown.